Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Colleges and universities are getting back to school for the coming semester. And that's going to mean a lot of different things for a lot of different schools and untold numbers of students across the country who are going to be coming back onto campus. But here's what we're worried about. Colleges, by their nature, are just perfect breeding grounds for the disease. We start this afternoon with breaking news out of Madison. Take a look. Let's talk really quickly about the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Health officials say they've recently seen a spike. And they anticipate 85% of those cases are tied to the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus. An early study found that nearly 3,000 students were infected by the end of September 2020. The chancellor today ordered undergrad students to limit in-person contact and limit movement for only essential activities for two weeks. Researchers found that there was a cluster of 20 bars located at the epicenter of the outbreak that were in close proximity to residence halls and off-campus housing. They used smartphone data to find, for example, the two hardest-hit residence halls where about one in five students were infected. Those smartphones were almost three times more likely to visit this 20-bar cluster than smartphones that came from two less affected residence halls. And contact tracing from the state shows coronavirus outbreaks have been linked to bars and restaurants more than any place else. So let's just think about that for a second. Social life is at the core of the college experience. College parties during the pandemic, spreading fear and possibly the virus. How is it that we can find methods to get students to fall in line with public health guidelines, but also get them to sort of sacrifice on some of the things that make higher education so special in this country? If you want things to go back to normal, then you have to be willing to sacrifice some things now. In order to serve the greater good and help flatten the curve of this disease as we enter one of the worst parts of this national tragedy? That's the big question that we have to answer. I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And today, Juan Perez on the conundrum facing colleges and universities across the country and what they've learned about how to keep campuses safe as they prepare for another semester clouded by the coronavirus pandemic. Juan, take me back to the beginning of the fall. What happened at schools during this past semester? We saw a bit of a nuanced picture emerging throughout the country. Some universities will welcome students back. But for others, remote learning will remain. The University of Michigan will bring students back to campus for the fall semester. Harvard University said today it's unlikely to return to normal by the fall. Princeton, like many other schools, will require everyone on campus to wear face coverings indoors at all times. At Notre Dame in Indiana, where the football team means everything to this school, today they announced that five of their players tested positive for COVID-19 along with 75 other students. The upshot, though, two main takeaways. There were schools across the country that really struggled to contain the virus. The University of North Carolina's main campus, Chapel Hill, reversed course yesterday, one week into the fall semester. It shut down undergraduate classrooms after detecting several COVID clusters among students. We saw a lot of highly publicized outbreaks at major institutions, both public and private. The result of that were lockdowns, scaled back in-person activities, other restrictions, and, and really just kind of a heavy effect on the things that make college life so special in this country. 
There was an early report from some researchers at Davidson College and other schools. This is, this is interesting. They concluded that campuses that reopened for in-person instruction were associated with a daily increase of more than 3,000 COVID cases across the country. Wow. The consensus seems to be that this transmission was not happening inside the classroom itself, right? It was other problems. It was dorms. The Virginia Department of Health is investigating an outbreak of COVID cases in a residence hall at Old Dominion University. Parties. Tonight, several UConn students have been evicted from on-campus housing after this packed party. And more videos are emerging of students being quite social, but without the distancing. Now, I, I said there was a flip side to this coin, and, and there was, because we did also see a collection of schools who scored some really early success, at least, with containing the pandemic. They're really helping kind of write the playbook for what we can work with as we get back to school next semester. At a time when so many colleges and universities across the country are struggling to keep COVID infections at bay, Duke University has it down to a science. Duke is getting a lot of attention recently for the strategies that they deployed. The school has created and implemented a testing system which has allowed their students to have an almost normal school year right in the middle of a pandemic. The CDC has even published a report on Duke's pooled testing program so that other schools can follow their lead. They designed kind of their own method to fast track testing. And they used a method that was kind of pioneered during the HIV crisis called pooled testing. And essentially what that means is that you take samples from a bunch of students and you um, combine, say, five of those samples into one test tube that you scan using sort of an in-house method at an initial level to see if that combined sample turns up positive. If it doesn't, okay, you can kind of set that aside and you can know that those five underlying students aren't showing signs of the disease, right? If that pool tests positive, well, then you know that somebody in there is in potentially infected, and so we flag that pooled sample for follow-up testing to drill down on where they are and other risk factors to stamp out a potential outbreak. But the method that they developed, this pooled testing model, kind of shows that even though there are a lot of new, cheap, and rapid testing technologies coming onto the market, a lot of schools still continue to rely on a form of testing that's more sensitive but prone to supply shortages and, and processing backlogs. What this pooled testing model can do is help sort of ease the strain on those limited resources, right? Because you're checking broader numbers first, and then you're, you're not necessarily going through the, the intensive use of resources that you might otherwise be if you were just like running individual test samples again and again and again. So uh, it cuts down on processing time. Duke concluded that their method could, you know, basically be completed within 18 to 30 hours, which is pretty good. And of course, it saved on these sort of testing reagents and other laboratory resources that uh, would otherwise might have been used. So now schools are getting ready for another semester, this time coming at what's probably the worst period of the pandemic. What are the plans that colleges and universities have this time? Are they planning to bring students back? And like, are they taking lessons from places that seem to make things work, like, say, Duke? Schools are absolutely bringing students back. We know that the early numbers are indicating a lot of schools are planning on either keeping up the sort of in-person hybrid model that they had before, um, or they're moving ahead to even bring back perhaps some additional students back to campus. Um, that's kind of painting with a, a broad brush, but that's sort of what we're expecting right now. Here's the issue. 
while hundreds of these colleges and universities bring thousands of students back to campus next semester, there are concerns that most of them are either unprepared or unequipped for the volume of testing, coronavirus testing, that's needed to do exactly what we were talking about just a second ago, keeping these infections in check. Some early projections from researchers suggest that about 60% of higher education institutions plan to host classes with all or, or some portion of their students on campus in 2021, okay? Kind of a broad category, but that gives you an idea. Now, let's contrast that with the finding that only an estimated 8% of those schools are prepared to test each of their students at least once a week. Now, that's a problem because there's a very emerging scientific consensus that campus testing is going to be necessary to keep an eye on outbreaks, to tamp them down, and that this testing is going to be necessary even after a vaccine becomes available. I know a lot of people are very excited about the prospect of a vaccine, but we have to remember that it's going to take time to distribute these doses and that college students aren't necessarily going to be first in line, anywhere near first in line or even the middle of the line for this initial round of, of doses. With that in mind and the fact that we've had a national testing strategy or lack of national testing strategy that's been criticized by public health experts, whose responsibility is it ultimately to figure out all of these plans at colleges, to make sure that schools do have the testing and, and all of the practices that they need to be safe. It starts with the university. They are responsible for setting the tone, setting the culture, developing the plans with whatever resources they have on campus. Obviously, some schools can turn to their world-class affiliated medical schools for help or their scientific labs that they have on campus. Other places might not have those resources and need to kind of work in different ways. But what is critical is that they're working with public health experts in the surrounding area, that they're working with governors and other relevant state authorities to coordinate, whether it's testing supplies or PPE or just planning in general that's necessary to keep an eye on this stuff. Um, the challenge, though, is that what we're talking about is something that still very much has an effect on what we would normally imagine as the ideal of college life in America, right? And, and part of cutting back on the virus requires cutting back on, on some of these things that students cherish, like wind ensemble performances, uh, attending athletics, um, you know, just the, the everyday sort of interactions in a classroom or, or in a quad that, that you would um, expect to see anywhere at any campus across the country. All that stuff is changing. So this comes with more than just a financial cost, I think is the, the point that I'm trying to make here. Obviously, it's expensive to get this stuff done, but people are concerned about whether the cost of a college degree is, is worth it. The growing number of students say they're not getting the college experience they paid for from closed campuses. There are protests and demands for refunds. Some are even suing their schools. We saw more than 150 lawsuits from students and parents who, who wanted refunds for tuitions and fees. People who were, again, questioning whether online education is worth the same price as a you know, traditional college experience. But again, there is damage here to, to being cut out of you know, these normal experiences. Harvard, for example, was talking about how vital the junior year is to helping their students complete capstone projects to graduate. Um, problems with students who live in different time zones, for example, just having trouble accessing classes. Um, that's part of why they set out their plans to get more back to normal in the coming semester. It's a problem. And, and the issue is that with cases 
surging the way they are throughout the country, um, schools are still going to have to continue to, to work on this. This isn't going away anytime soon. And so this coming year is in all likelihood still going to look very different from what it normally would. Juan Perez, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for taking the time. Also today, the UK's National Health Service is getting ready to start one of the first mass immunization programs against coronavirus. In an effort that's being closely watched across the globe, Britain is set to begin issuing vaccinations on Tuesday. The country now has 50 vaccination hubs set up at hospitals after last week UK health officials approved the vaccine, which is developed by BioNTech and Pfizer. The NHS says people who are 80 and older who are attending the hospital as outpatients, as well as those being discharged from hospitals, will be among the first to receive the vaccine. And Rudy Giuliani, the former New York City mayor who's leading President Trump's legal push to challenge the election results, has tested positive for coronavirus. Trump announced the positive results on Twitter on Sunday. Giuliani, who's 76 years old, has been traveling across the country in recent weeks, arguing on behalf of the president in courtrooms and state legislative hearings. The positive diagnosis will sideline him ahead of some important dates for the president's legal team, including Tuesday, when all legal challenges and recounts must be resolved, and December 14th, when members of the Electoral College meet and begin casting votes. Subscribe to Politico Dispatch wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, check out some of our other shows like Nerdcast, Women Rule, Politico Energy, Pulse Check, and Global Translations. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening.